0: I invite you to turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. It's the final chapter in the book of Genesis. And of all the 44 sermons, yes, I went back and counted. You might not have, but I did. Of all the 44 sermons that I've shared with you from the book of Genesis, uh, I felt the greatest amount of pressure and stress about this one. uh, Because it's the last one. And when you come to the end of a book as rich as Genesis, you want to make sure that what we take away from it is a central truth of what God has communicated all along the way. If you are just now visiting with us, or maybe you're new to our church, you may say, why would you preach through an entire book like that? My goodness, 44 sermons. That's almost a year's worth of sermons. You know, we we endeavor to do that because we try to make sure we understand How the Bible fits together and how a book like the book of Genesis with such a a twisting and turning narrative that unfolds not just from the creation of the world in Genesis chapter 1 but all the way through these major families of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. How does all that fit together? Now, I was talking to someone this past week. They said, you know, I never really knew how Joseph fit in the book of Genesis, that that was one of Jacob's sons. And and connecting all of that gives such greater meaning and clarity to what happens in Genesis. But more importantly than that, more importantly than just putting the whole narrative together, when we stay in a book like this, uh, we begin to be immersed in a truth, Because God communicates some central truths, some things that are essential to understanding His Word. And especially when we read it all in one place like this, and we uh, spend almost a year together in one place, we begin to take something central away. And hopefully, it's a truth about who God is. A better understanding of His character. A better understanding of how we relate to Him. A better understanding of, of how this central theme fits also, not just in this book, but also in the whole narrative of Scripture. If you're taking notes today, I want to give you a definition. Was the best way I knew to communicate this? And I thought long and hard about creative ways to say it, but uh, this is the central theme of the book of Genesis, and it's providence, providence. And you might say, well, that's a, that's a big theology word. We don't have time for that today. Listen, I hope that by the end of our time together this morning, that whether you are six years old or 66 years old or 96 years old, that we all walk away with a better understanding of this big theological word loaded with all sorts of meaning, God's providence. The definition is there on the screen. It's... Very simply, is this God's knowledge and His direction of all things for His glory and our good? God's knowledge and direction of all things for His glory and for our good. For some of you sitting here who've walked this whole journey with us, you say, wait a minute, we talked about this before. You're right, we did. Because we've been in the book of Genesis. It comes up again and again. You've seen this definition before. And the reason you have is from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through Genesis chapter 50, we see God working out his good purpose. That's why we call this the roots of our redemption. That's why we dwell on that because this is God's perfect plan. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2. Let's be reminded of this whole journey. Uh, Remember the serpent's deception, Right? Uh, the enemy entered the serpent. Satan entered the serpent and he deceived Adam and Eve. They ate of the fruit and sin entered the world. And if you were left only with Genesis chapter 3, you would say, uh oh, Satan has won. Is God really good? But thankfully, the story continues and we see God's goodness continue to unfold. Well, but it's not long till we find Cain murdering Abel. Again. Evil, wickedness, threatening God's good plan. But God is provident. He is good and He's directing everything. And so we see later a global flood. And you say, How could humanity ever come back from that? Well, He preserved a family. Why? Because it was His good purpose to do so. And then He said to Abraham, From you, I'm going to bless the nations. Because from you, uh, you're going to have a great family. And I'm going to give you land, and I promise all of these things to you. We see this in Genesis chapter 12. He says, go to a land that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to bless you. Well, there's a problem in that. We find very quickly thereafter that Sarah was infertile, that they struggled to have a child. And that threatened, it would seem, God's plan. But God was in control, and they had a child. Well, then later on, we have Isaac. And maybe you've forgotten about this, but remember, Sarah dies. They have one son. Abraham and Sarah have one son. His name is Isaac. Because Sarah is dead, there can't be another son. And there's one problem with Isaac at that point in the story. He was a hopeless bachelor. And there were no suitable brides anywhere to be found. And it would seem that this promise of God, that there would be this whole nation of people from Abraham and his family, this promise was in jeopardy again. It would seem that the enemy had won. But God sends Isaac out and he finds a bride for him. Well, then there's Jacob. We spent a lot of time talking about Jacob. And we didn't spare any of the brutal details about Jacob either. He, He had a really broken family and he was a very broken person, right? And we find right off the bat with Jacob, he deceives his father into taking the blessing and then we have Esau's rage and anger that almost takes his life and we see all of these things happen and it seems that this would certainly threaten God's plan. But God preserves Jacob. He protects him. In fact, he meets with him in the wilderness and says, I am with you. I will not leave you, God says. Well, Jacob had some sons and they were pretty broken too. He had one son named Joseph, and he loved Joseph so very much. Well, the jealousy of Joseph's brothers got the best of them, and they beat Joseph to within an inch of his life. They threw him into a pit. They contemplated his murder, and then they sold him into slavery. And then they came back, and they told their father, Jacob, he's dead. And for so many years, Jacob grieved the supposed death of uh, Joseph. It would seem once again That everything was in jeopardy. As we've walked through Joseph's life, we've seen over and over again that God was in control. At no point in time was his plan really ever in jeopardy. Why? Because of his providence. His goodness. His purpose. His power. And so Joseph is going to sum all of this up in one conversation right here in Genesis 50. He's going to sum all of this up in one conversation with his brothers, and he's going to give us a key to understanding not just the book of Genesis and everything we've seen, but the rest of the Bible as well. So I invite you to honor the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 50, would you stand with me? Beginning in verse 15, the words are on the screen as well. I'm going to read just down through verse 21. Listen carefully to how this conversation unfolds. It says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, If Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we've caused him. And so they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering that they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. His brothers also came to him, and they bowed before him, and they said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children, and he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word, and I pray that it's clear that you'll help us to understand today who you are and who you've called us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. say, my goodness, he got lazy right here at the end of Genesis 50. He skipped the first 14 verses of the chapter. Uh, Well, that's not what happened. I I wrestled with what to do with those first 14 verses, but here's what happens in all of that. I'm going to sum it up for you. Jacob dies, and then Jacob is buried, and all the details of that burial are Uh, recounted right there in those first 14 verses. I'll spare you all those details because really the purpose of those verses is to set up what happens to conclude this book. You see, after Jacob had died, we find that that Joseph and his brothers, they they had briefly visited the land that God had promised to give them. It says there in uh, those verses that they went to Canaan specifically. They buried Jacob exactly the way he had asked them to. And as they walk away from Canaan, I want you to keep this in mind. They're walking away from the land that God had actually promised. Canaan was the promised land, and they briefly visit it just to bury their dad. And so when they walk back into Egypt with the promised land at their back, you got to think surely they're questioning is God really in all of this? Is He really sovereign? Is He really good? I mean, he promised, and our dad died in faith, saying this land would be ours, and yet we're going back into Egypt. But you see, when they got to Joseph, and they had this conversation, he tells them about God's goodness. And he tells us these same truths, all right? So three truths we're going to see about the providence of God this morning. To give us a fuller definition of not just how this is impactful to this one chapter, but Genesis as the whole and in the Bible as a whole. Here we go. First, consider this. God's providence ensures that grace is available to God's people. God's providence ensures that grace is available to God's people. You see in verse 15, Joseph's brothers, they came back to him and they were scared for their lives. Why? Because they were afraid that Joseph would now seek revenge. And all of us say, of course. Right? We would all be afraid. Uh, Perhaps they had created all this in their mind and they thought, well, Jacob was the linchpin of our family. He was really the one holding this whole thing together. And now that he's gone, Joseph is going to seek the revenge that we've had coming all along. You see, they were afraid they would lose their lives at the hands of Joseph's justice. And this illustrates a very important lesson regarding grace. Notice this, we treasure grace because we have first received mercy. Grace and mercy, these two, we've talked about this, they complement one another. Uh, You can't have grace without mercy and you can't have mercy without grace. But their differences are subtle and important. You see, we need to understand mercy. Because mercy is what they were looking for in this moment. They were saying, surely our brother won't give us what we really deserve. Well, what have they done? Well, Genesis 37 tells us about all of it. Uh, In that one chapter, we find one of the darkest narratives of all the Bible where these brothers turn on this favored one. They beat him. They throw him in a pit. And while they are within earshot of him crying for help in agony, they're plotting his death and his future. They sell him into slavery. They go back and they tell their father that his beloved son was dead. And for so many years, their father mourned. In fact, he told them when he heard the news, remember he said, I might as well just die now. Life has no meaning. They deserve to be met with consequences. But here's why this is important for us. So do we. So do we. You say, now wait a minute, I'm not like those scoundrels. I didn't beat my brother, I didn't nearly kill him, I didn't lie about his death, I didn't set this whole stage. But listen carefully, friends, the Bible tells us that every one of us have sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible tells us even further that because we've all sinned, The wages of that sin, in other words, the penalty of that sin is death. The thing that we deserve is death. If not for God's mercy, that's what we would get. Mercy and grace, remember. Mercy is when God withholds the punishment for sin that we deserve. That death that we deserve, He withholds it. But then grace is when He gives us the blessings He lavishes his love on us that we did not deserve. That he gives us the blessing of his presence and eternity with him because of his grace. But don't you see, without mercy, we don't really understand grace. We got to understand what we deserve. So notice how Joseph and his brothers, they illustrate this next truth about grace. Grace is always given And it's never earned in God's economy. You got to think, if you're the brothers here and you're in this desperate moment and you realize what you deserve, you're going to do everything possible to get out of what you deserve. And so they put together this scheme. They were fixers. Anybody else a fixer, right? (laughs) You want to solve this problem yourself. And that's what they were doing. And so in verses 16 and 17, we see that they, they plot a way to manipulate Joseph into being merciful and into being gracious. In verse 17, we have a detail there. It says that Joseph wept when they arrived. Why did he do that? He was weeping because surely they would have understood his grace by this point. I believe also that God grieves in a similar way when we try to earn the grace that he wants to lavish on us. We grieve the heart of God when we try to earn his favor through religious ritual or earning his love. But more damaging than that, God's people, we certainly grieve the heart of God when we paint a picture for the world that grace must be earned or grace must be manipulated. Wasn't this Jesus' beef with the Pharisees all along? The Pharisees, they, they took the law and they added laws to that. And they burdened the people with the law. And they said, listen, only if you meet these standards of the law will God ever show you his love and affection. Listen to what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Matthew 23 and verse 23. He said it not just to the Pharisees, but he said it to us if we're not careful. Listen. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. A tenth. Doesn't that sound like a tithe? Y'all heard of that before? I'm not telling you not to tithe today, okay? But he was telling them listen, this isn't the point. There's more. He says, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. He says, you've missed mercy. You've gotten the law right on all these other things, but woe to you because you've missed mercy. And then he says, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So what he says is, it all should go hand in hand. In other words, if you're going to follow the Lord in faithfulness, if you're going to do even the things that he asks of us to do, to share our faith, to, to give and be generous and to love our neighbor as ourselves you're going to do all of that, mercy is a part of that. It all works together is what he says. We don't have to manipulate God's grace, brothers and sisters. It's his gift to those who would trust and follow him. And because of that, this final truth about grace, fear has no place for those who have received grace. Notice Joseph's response in verse 18. He begins very simply and very straightforward. He said that, well, sorry, verse 19. He says, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. And he concludes his conversation by saying, therefore, Don't be afraid. Isaiah would say it this way in chapter 12 and verse 2 of his prophecy. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and he is my might. He has become my salvation. The notion that it was Joseph who told the brothers this makes this all the more beautiful. But Joseph's next words about suffering are surely what captivated them. He told them about God's grace, but then he talked to them about suffering. Notice this, God's providence ensures that suffering has a purpose for God's people. Joseph knew this truth better than anyone. He had lived it. God had used suffering in his life to shape his understanding and to shape him as a person. Listen to his words again in verses 20 and 21. I want to read it again. It's so beautiful. He says, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and I will take care of your children. God was refining his understanding. God was refining his understanding of his character through this suffering, particularly God's character through suffering. You see, Joseph, in making this statement, he made a statement about who God was and also who he was in relation to God. And he really does this with a question that leads into all of this in verse 19. He says, Am I in the place of God? This is foundational to what he tells them. He says, listen, I'm not God and I have no desire to be God. But here's what's unique about that. Joseph had earned the right to be God in their lives. I mean, in Egypt, he had been given this title. He had been given this authority. And one could say that in this moment for his brothers, he had more authority than Pharaoh himself. And so his question communicates his humility. But it also communicates his understanding of who God is. We could say it this way. Oh, to be God for a day. What would we fix? What would you do? Oh, to be God for a day. Surely, each and every one of us, when we've been wronged, I have no doubt we would make sure that those who wronged us, we would get revenge on them, right? Oh, to be God for a day, we would surely end all the suffering in the world. To be God for a day, I know some Alabama fans in here who would make sure they won a national championship this year. And maybe every year after that, I don't know. But I say that to be petty, and that's intentional because that is not our place. How dare we ever try to make ourselves God? And Joseph knew this. How much trouble we would save for ourselves and for all of those around us if we never once tried to usurp God's authority again. Isn't that the root of sin? Genesis chapter 3. What does the serpent tempt them with? He says, oh, your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to be like who? God. The root of our sin lies in the question that Joseph asks. Am I in the place of God? God was refining his understanding of his character, God's character. But secondly, God refines our understanding of evil through suffering. I mean, this is the pivotal question that so many people ask, is what do we do with evil? What do we do with suffering in the world? Well, this is the message of Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, right? Right? Paul writes it this way, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Here's what ultimately Paul is saying and Joseph is saying when he says what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Here's what he's ultimately saying. There is someone behind our suffering beyond those who perpetrate the evil. A lot of times we demonize or mischaracterize people as the enemy. We want to have someone physically who we can blame. But let me tell you something. That's not the enemy. What Joseph knew, we also need to understand. There is a real enemy with a capital E. And Joseph knew this. And therefore, he's able to love his brothers and extend mercy to them, I'm going to get real intimate for just a minute because I believe it really hits home with all of us. The real enemy, the real enemy for God's people is not those who actually piloted the planes into the Twin Towers. That's not the real enemy. All evil, all suffering that happens in this world, it happens because of the enemy. The enemy. And, And this is not just me trying to wax eloquent before you. No, this is because this is very biblical. Listen carefully. Job's suffering illustrates this so well. Job suffered natural disasters, right? It was his children that were taken by a natural disaster. He suffers emotional disaster. Sadness and grief and when he still doesn't turn his back on God God then gives Satan a little more leash and he says fine you can touch his body he'll break out with bulls and he'll be in physical pain and misery I don't claim to understand how all this really fits together I wish I could have a moment with Joseph here because he really got it I think but what we do have is this very simple understanding that evil is not nonsense and it is not chaos. Evil does not catch God by surprise. Evil may derail our emotions, but it does not derail the plans of God. Joseph knew this. God is still in control when we experience suffering and evil at the hands of others. God is still in control when we get that medical diagnosis that we weren't expecting. God is in control when that loved one dies that we weren't expecting to die. God is in control when someone tragically perishes in a car accident. God is in control when someone loses their job and has no source of provision. God is in control when our world is at war. God's in control. And what what comes from that ultimately is what he leaves with them. God refines us as his instruments through suffering. Joseph's actions speak so much louder than his words in verse 21. He says to them, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and I will take care of your children. And he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. The irony in this the grace in this, is they deserved to die. And not only did he bless them, but he blessed their families. The language here is one of tenderness. Uh, The the word I there, uh, if you study this in the original language, it it says I myself. In other words, me personally. I'm not going to delegate this care to someone else. I'm going to take care of you. How could he do this? How could he do this if not for God shaping him through his own suffering? He had seen God's care for him in his suffering. And therefore, he would not dare turn his back on his brothers in theirs. But finally, God's providence tells about grace and suffering. But ultimately, God's providence ensures that death is not the end for God's people. Death is not the end for God's people. In verses 22 through 26, we read the account of Joseph's death. Uh, This is wild. Uh, Two people die in this one chapter. And I think that's intentional in the writing of this book. Don't forget, Genesis begins with what? Life. And it ends in its final chapter with death times two. What does this tell us? Listen to verses 24 through 26. I think this kind of unlocks the understanding. Joseph said to his brothers, it says, I'm about to die. But God will certainly come to your aid and he will bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, he says it a second time, you are to carry my bones up from here. Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and they placed him in a coffin in Egypt. Genesis begins with the cradle of life and it ends with a coffin of death. But the key to this is what he tells them in this promise. This statement of profound faith. He says it not once, but he says it twice. He says, God will Visit you. And Genesis ends. Genesis ends with this statement of faith, something that Joseph never saw himself. And in fact, generations of people beyond him didn't see it either. You see, for 400 years after his death, the people of Israel lived in bondage in Egypt. But death was not the end. But what? Because what did God do? Well, Exodus tells us God visited his people. When God called Moses, the language literally says this, God came down. He heard, he saw, he listened to the suffering, and God came down, and he called Moses to deliver his people. God will visit you. But what Joseph could not see is what we now see as we read the whole Bible You see, God's visitation of Israel and Egypt, yes, that's beautiful, but it has no real personal impact for us, it would seem. But what does have an impact for us is that God visited again. He visited in our Emmanuel He entered the suffering of humanity. He became God with us. He visited with us. He knew us. He knew our pains. He knew our trials. He knew our temptations. He knew every inch of our suffering. Why? Because of this promise given all the way back in Genesis 50. From the lips of Joseph who knew none the wiser. God will visit you. And so friends, it's by faith that we trust that Jesus came to give us life. Death is not the end for God's people. More profound than that is this was always God's plan. We know that because of what we've seen unfold in these 50 chapters. God's providence. You know what the word providence, what it comes from? It's a a combination of two words in Latin, it's the combination of pro, that's the prefix, and video. Video means to see something, right? That makes sense to us. Video. but Pro means beforehand. And so quite literally, providence means this. God sees beforehand. That's his character quality. That's who he is. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, when sin entered the world, we find that God already had a plan even then. He says that... The seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. This is Jesus who would one day come. But for us as God's people, here's why this is so important for us to understand. He came once to die for sin. He came once to offer a way of salvation. But the Bible concludes just like Genesis 50 concludes this promise in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 20. He says this, surely I am coming again. God visited Israel in Exodus as a fulfillment of the faith of Joseph and Jacob. God visited humanity as Jesus. And for God's people, there is life in God's hands when he visits again. These words mean life for those who trust Jesus. But those who don't know Jesus those who have never trusted him as their savior, if you're in this room, listen carefully to a stern warning. These words are not life for you. If you are not a child of God, if you have never given your life to him, there is no reason to look with hope at his return. And so I invite you, two, two things. One, if you're a believer, understand the urgency understand the significance of what our task and mission is, that there are people who don't know him. We want his return to be life-giving. But if you're not a child of God, this invitation is for you as well. I invite you to give your life to Jesus today, to trust him as your Savior, and to walk with him into new life. Would you stand as we pray?